We've been working through the book of Acts. We've been reading it through, praying it through, preaching it through, and trusting that what we see in the book of Acts will become, I guess, culture and normal for us as a a church. And today we're going to look at maybe the biggest turning point in the book of Acts, which is also maybe the biggest turning point in the story of the early church, and probably a massive turning point in the story, I'm going to really up the ante here, in the story of the world. Today we're going to look at the conversion of Paul the Apostle. And Paul is undoubtedly one of the key figures in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, his converted life, his changed life, leads to all sorts of God activity all over the Roman Empire and beyond. And then from that moment on, he starts to write so many of the letters that we have in our New Testament. And he is just this prolific preacher and church planter and theologian and pastor shaping our world to this day. So I'm really excited about looking at this together. And I think maybe a word like conversion to some of us is a little bit new, or maybe it's an idea we think about, but actually it's not something we really process, even though it is so central to what it means to be a Christian and to the gospel. You see, conversion is massive in the life of faith. And I was thinking while I was preparing for this, I've got this friend, Russell, maybe some of you would know him. He's the kind of hobbyist, passionate a guy who always has a different phase going on in his life. So I probably bump into him every year or so now, and there's always something different going on with Russell. I feel like I catch him in a different phase of life. So I met him on the first day of orientation when I went to university in 2003. I'm old. And in 2003, Russell was going through a phase where he made his own clothes. And I distinctly remember him at Howard College campus. I think he'd cut up one of his mom's old dresses or maybe one of the family's curtains. And he'd made these really baggy t-shirts that he was wearing. He was a drama student. Uh, No offense to any drama students here, but he was definitely a bit avant-garde and a little bit different. And then probably the next phase Russell went into... Yeah, there we go. Nice to see you. Uh, the next phase that he went into was more of kind of a screamo, heavy metal, uh, death metal kind of rock and roll phase. So he went into the all black kind of vibe. He had like the black Converse All Stars on, black skinny jeans, which I am wearing today, and then some kind of like a band shirt he'd be wearing. He was hanging out burn at burn. He was hanging out at the Winston. That was kind of his life. After that phase, he went through the tattoo phase, and I met him, and he showed me, he'd gotten his grandpa's surname tattooed across his chest, sugar skulls on both legs, he had this picture from, I think, Revelation 21 tattooed all around his arm, he was just covered in tattoos, and then probably fast forward another year, Russell was just chowing a lot of rice and a lot of eggs, because he was at the gym, getting dak for vac, and he just bulked out, and he was this massive, massive gym guy. So I don't know what phase Russell's going through now, I'm glad he's not here this morning, so he might feel a little bit embarrassed. But as much as those are interesting kind of hobbyist or phase people, and I know there are some people like that in our church, that is not conversion. You know, that is going through different phases of life, going through different interests. But conversion is a much deeper transformation at a heart and mind level. Conversion is a fundamental change in the makeup of who we are, where actually we have a 180 degree uh, direction change. Actually, we see ourselves different. Our identity has changed. Our core values change. What we live for, our purpose in life changes. How we see ourselves in the world and others is changed. That is what conversion is all about. And in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, we're introduced to Paul the Apostle for the first time. He's this man whose life is about to be fundamentally changed by who Jesus is and what he's done. And the story that Luke paints for us is an incredible one. 
See, what's going on in Acts chapter 7 is we've got a bit of a courtroom kind of scene going on. I couldn't really find a picture of what those courtrooms look like. But we've got a man named Stephen who's in the dock or in the witness stand. And he's really defending himself against heresy charges. Because he's a man who's preaching about Jesus, is living for Jesus. His life has been transformed by Jesus. And now actually there are a lot of people lying about him saying that he said some crazy things and is doing some crazy things. And actually, he is being persecuted and will potentially be executed for his faith. So Stephen is in the dock. He's in the witness stand. He's literally preaching for his life, telling people about how Jesus is the Messiah, taking them through the Old Testament piece by piece, pointing to the fact that Christ is the fulfillment of all of these promises. And at the end, I don't know why, because his face is beaming like an angel. People think he's innocent. He looks like this pure, godly man. He challenges the people, and he says, actually, you do not believe God, and you do not believe in his promised son, and you are in sin. And the courtroom erupts. The people do not like this challenge from Stephen, as you can understand. And all I can really say is pandemonium ensues. There's chaos, there's shouting. What Luke writes down is there is gnashing of teeth going on, which I can't really imagine in a courtroom scene. If you all started to gnash your teeth at me today, I can't really picture that. But they're gnashing their teeth, they're shouting, there's chaos, and this mob justice mentality kind of takes over this room, and they come forward and they kill Stephen. He's punished and executed for what he's believed. It's almost like Luke pulls the camera back over all of this crowd as this pandemonium is going on. And we see Stephen being killed, stoned and put to death. And then the shot changes from looking at Stephen's death to one solitary figure who's kind of to the side. And this figure has got a smirk on his face. He seems important. He seems powerful. And the people who are coming to attack Stephen and put him to death are kind of coming to this person and looking for his approval before they go and they kill this man. Saul is standing there watching all of this happen. People are kind of leaving their clothes with him. He's too important to do the actual killing, but he's the one who's got the authority to have him put to death. And after approving Stephen's execution, this man, Saul or Paul, starts going door to door around the Roman Empire from city to town to village, knocking on doors and looking for Christians that he can arrest and drag off to jail and persecute or execute. And he's got orders from the synagogue to do something like this. Luke describes this moment in the history of church as a great persecution against the church. And while some friends of Stephen are still burying him and weeping and mourning over his death at exactly the same time, there are people from Jerusalem, Christians fleeing all over the empire. They're going to different towns and villages to save their wives and their children and themselves. They're trying to get out of them because they know that if they follow Jesus, their lives are in danger. And the very thing that Saul was hoping to do to actually stamp out Christianity, to put this movement to death, he's encouraging. It's like he's stirring this thing up. And the people who flee from Jerusalem go all around the empire, taking the good news of Jesus with them. And more and more followers of Jesus are starting to spring up all over the place. Acts 7 verse 58. Then they cast him, Stephen, out of the city and they stoned him. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. You can almost hear this subtle music playing in the background. Dum, dum, dum. This is a moment as Luke is introducing a new character to the story of the early church. And he's this arch nemesis, this enemy of the church who is breathing out murderous threats and wants to kill Christianity before it advances. 
Acts 8 verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made, him, made lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. If this was a movie that we were watching, they probably cut to a scene of dark clouds rolling in over Jerusalem. This is a dark moment for the church. Things have changed. As the church has exploded and grown, now they're facing their first serious opposition. Some of you have been in church for a while, might have heard this quote before. But uh, someone named Tertullian said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We'll come back to that quote in just a second. But I wanted to tell you something interesting about Tertullian. This man was very interestingly uh, a Christian thinker. He's one of the early church fathers. In fact, he's regarded as the man who uh, shaped or was the founder of Western theology. And he's an African man. Grew up in North Africa in a country called Tunisia that we've been talking about and praying for and giving to uh, regularly. And um, he was in a city named Carthag where actually the faith was being fussed through. Actually, North Africa was a massive scene in the first few hundred years of the church for the development of theology and the understanding of what the Bible was teaching and fleshing out and fussing through the message of Jesus. And that spread throughout Europe and the Middle East and now all over the world. And I just want you to know this. The African church in the first few hundred years after Jesus' life shaped the future of Christianity around the world. If you're interested in reading a little bit more about this, there's an amazing book called How Africa Shaped the Christian Mind by Dr. Thomas Oden. But I want you to be encouraged. The church in Africa has shaped the globe and what people think about Jesus. So Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And one of the things we see in the Bible and as we read church history is that again and again and again, as the church goes through persecution and hardship, it's good for the church. It strengthens the church. The true church is built up even more through opposition. And I was thinking about it. It's almost like the church is a bit of a cockroach. The church is hard to kill. Now, this is maybe disgusting. Maybe if you were me, you wouldn't share the story. But my wife and I live on the fifth floor of a block of flats. (laughs) It's not cockroach-ridden. But there are some times during the year when the weather's not so great or the weather changes. We've got this weird kind of cleft in the middle of our building and it seems like the cockroaches come into the flat through there. So at night, sometimes nine, ten o'clock, we come in, we switch on our lights and there's a cockroach defiantly staring at us from the kitchen. I think there was about a two-week period where this one large cockroach just taunted us. We'd come into the flat and he would just sneak under the washing machine or behind the fridge and no matter what we did, we couldn't get this guy, but we did get him. We finally got him. And I'm sure you've had it before where you've sprayed doom or bug spray or whatever it is on a cockroach and it just defiantly looks up at you and it drinks it in. It's like, you are making me stronger with your spray, you know? And you watch this cockroach and it just levels up and it gets bigger and bigger and it goes super saiyan and you will never be able to put this bug down. What the Bible teaches us and what we see in the book of Acts is that persecution has been good for the church. Persecution has strengthened the church. Persecution has made the church, I guess, clear on its calling. This is who we are. We are going to live for Jesus. And very sadly, on the other side of the spectrum, peace times, times of comfort has made the church more complacent, more apathetic about what we believe, more apathetic about living out the ways of Jesus. We'll kind of pick and choose what we do, but we're happy to leave lots of Jesus' teachings behind and do our own thing. 
Acts 9 verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. I kind of love how Luke is painting him as a monster, breathing out threats and murder. He's like a dragon. He's almost depicting him as Satan here. He went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood uh, speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, I think one of the dangers with a passage like this that is so radical and so beautiful about what Jesus has done with Saul is we read that and think, well, that's not my story. That's not my story. Like my story of beginning to follow Jesus was very ordinary. It wasn't radical like that. I didn't have any supernatural experience or shining lights or audible voices. So my story doesn't count. Or maybe you read something like that and you think, oh, that's only the chosen few. Obviously, I'm not as special as Paul. But in Acts chapter 8, just before this moment happens, we read of a number of conversion stories. One of the stories we read is of the finance minister of Ethiopia, a powerful and influential figure. He is converted. And he's converted by someone actually being led by the Spirit to just go and explain to him what the Scriptures teach out of the book of Isaiah. A little bit further on in Acts chapter 16, a businesswoman named Lydia becomes a follower of Jesus. She is converted because there's a prayer meeting and a Bible study going on around her. And those who are praying in that scene explain to her about Jesus, and she becomes a follower of him. Not all conversion stories are radical. Not all conversion stories are externally bright lights and loud noises and supernatural activity. But there is a lot going on in the book of Acts that we can relate to. And I think Paul's story is a powerful picture to understand what Jesus has done in many of our lives in this room. I think Paul is probably the least likely Christian convert of all time. I think he would have said that. I think if like his friends had joked with him and said, do you think you'll ever become a Christian? He would have put money on it that he would never do something like this. He hated the church. He hated Jesus. He hated the gospel. This was the thing he wanted to stamp out, not something he wanted to entertain at all. And he was an educated man. Paul, from a young age, was studying the scriptures. He understood religion. He understood philosophy. He had very strongly formed worldviews and understandings about God and life and people and the future and all of these things. It was strongly formed in him. And I want to say that because I'm sure all of us in this room have got friends who are like that. Maybe you are like that and you're visiting us today and you've got strong opinions about the church and about God and about what is true and what is false in the world. And Paul did. And I just want to remind us, whether your friends are atheists or agnostic or follow another religion or just are hostile to Jesus, that this is who Paul was. And Paul's life is about to be amazingly changed when Jesus enters in. In this moment in Acts 9, where Jesus comes onto the scene and encounters Paul, he has to leave behind everything he's believed before. For years and years and years, he's had certain truths that he's held to that now have been defeated by his actual encounter with the living Jesus. He kind of has to surrender everything he's believed and everything he's held to and everything he's given his life to and how he's violently opposed the church because he sees now 
that everything that he held to was wrong. Jesus really is the way, the truth, and the life. And I want to, I guess, encourage all of us with this truth, that if uh, the God we believe in agrees with everything that we like and disagrees with everything that we dislike, then probably we are serving a God of our own creation. We're serving a God that is made in our image, a God that we've made up, and maybe even worshiping ourselves rather than worshiping the true and living God, Jesus. And we see this with Paul. His theology is about to be rocked as he encounters this man. I think the thing I like the most about this story is that Paul doesn't meet Jesus. He doesn't find Jesus. Jesus finds him. Paul doesn't just kind of find the answers he was looking for. Jesus gives him the answers he was looking for. Paul doesn't save himself. Jesus saves him. And Jesus literally breaks into his life, breaks into this ride, shines light into his eyes. He falls off the horse and is confronted by the truth that Jesus is the savior of the world. And Jesus reveals this to him. Jesus shows Paul the truth. Jesus washes Paul clean of his sins. See, Paul might have tried to forgive himself. I don't even think Paul saw that he had a need. Paul thought he was all good until he had this encounter with Jesus. But he's washed clean. He's forgiven. He's reconciled to God. And Jesus gives him a new life with a completely new Savior. I want to ask you today, is Jesus your Savior? Have you been converted Not do you know about Christianity, not do you go to church often, but have you been converted? Are you born again by what Jesus has done in your life? Paul very clearly didn't deserve any of this. Paul had been persecuting the church, hating Jesus. He hadn't deserved this and he hadn't earned this. What Jesus did for him was completely grace. This was freely given to a man who had fought him and hated him because of Jesus' love and pursuit of him not anything he had done. And the encounter that Paul has with Jesus will change him forever. We actually read this in Acts 9 verse 9. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. This experience with Jesus has rocked his world. Like, I don't know about you, but I love food. (laughs) I really, really enjoy eating. I love the flavors. I love the tastes. Three days without food or drink to me would be very, very tough. And Paul is maybe not even choosing this. He's just been absolutely rocked by this encounter with Jesus. And he can't think about anything else at all. This encounter has left him with a limp. It's changed him permanently. I assume Paul could have run from Jesus after this. But at the same time, I don't think he could have denied that experience he had. And the truth that Jesus was who he said that he was. You see, Paul's story was redefined by Jesus and this encounter he had. And later on, he'll go on to write about him and say in Philippians 3 verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul's life made a complete 180 from that moment he met Jesus. Now, this is just like a basic lesson because I know some of us make this mistake. I've been in many conversations where people have said, his life did a complete 360. That is wrong. You know, people like, a 360 means that you turn around and you keep going in the same direction. (laughs) What Paul did is he was going this way. He hated the church. He was persecuting the church. He wanted to destroy the church. He was an enemy of Jesus. And he turned in the other direction. He went from persecutor to persecuted. Paul actually will be martyred for following Jesus one day. He will be killed because he's chosen to follow Jesus and preach his message and make disciples and plant churches and advance his kingdom. 
Paul's life is radically changed. And we see how God uses him throughout the rest of the book of Acts. Now, I think the reality is this kind of story doesn't really make for a good book. I want you to think about this for a second. We don't actually have much build up with Paul. We get a chapter and a bit. You know, end of Acts 7, Paul is a bad guy. Acts 8, he's not great. Acts 9, right at the beginning, he's a Christian. And from then on, he's serving Jesus. One quarter or a third of the way through the book of Acts, the great enemy of the church is converted and becomes its greatest hero. If I was writing the book of Acts, if I was making up the story, I would have done it completely different. I would have built Paul up as the enemy of the church for 28 chapters. I would have just built it up more and more. And I would have ended Acts chapter 28 at the end of Acts with Peter or James or John able to lead Paul to the Lord and seeing the greatest persecutor of the church come to begin to follow Jesus. That makes a lot more sense. That's probably a better story. But what Luke is trying to tell here isn't a great story. He's trying to talk about how Jesus changes lives. He's showing us how this enemy of the church is completely transformed and how his life goes on from there. Now, I want to think about this in movies for a second, if this is how movies were made. Think about some of the great villains of all time. Of course, Scar from The Lion King. Imagine if a third or a quarter of the way through The Lion King, Mufasa has just been killed. Scar goes to the lions and he repents. He says, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I killed Mufasa, but I want to leave the hyena life behind me. I want to serve you, Simba. I will serve your kingdom, the kingdom of the Pride Lands. I will devote my life to this, serving and improving the Pride Lands. Or imagine uh, the Joker, Batman film. Joker in the first quarter of the film, wreaking havoc, killing people, trying to take out Gotham City. And he has this epiphany, this moment where the light shines in. He falls off his back. And he comes to Batman and the Robin, and he says, I want to serve with you guys to protect Gotham City for the rest of my days. Seeing the error of my ways, I want to choose a new life. Or Marvel, for the last 10 years, has been building towards Avengers Endgame. It comes out in the next couple of weeks. 10 years, 20 films, build up to see what Thanos is going to do. Imagine in the first few minutes of Avengers Endgame, they reckon it's going to be over three hours long, this film. The first few minutes, Thanos just has a change of heart. Because, you know, end of the last film, I clicked my fingers, I killed half of the universe, but I've actually decided I want to be on the good team. Avengers, can I serve with you? Let's use these infinity stones for some good, and let's serve the universe in a better way. This kind of plot twist doesn't work well from a storytelling point of view. But what Luke is trying to show us is how Jesus changes lives. Paul's life is radically transformed by the message of the gospel. And he can do the same with you and I too. Not only can he do that in your life today, but for the rest of us sitting here who maybe have been following Jesus for a long time, he wants to use you and I to help people to experience that conversion, that life change, that radical transformation. In Acts 9 verse 10 to 12, we read this. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. I think one of the things I really love here is it's Ananias, a disciple. It's not Ananias, one of the apostles, you know. It's not Peter, James, or John. It's not even like the B-team apostles. Thaddeus or, I don't know, one of those guys. The other Judas, Nathaniel, Bartholomew, one of those guys. 
He doesn't pick one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. He doesn't pick a deacon. If it was my choice, I would go with Philip the evangelist. Like if we're going after Paul to become a follower of Jesus, let's get the big guns in. Philip the evangelist, he's even got that in his name. He's the guy. If he goes to Paul, Paul will become a follower of Jesus. He doesn't pick Philip the evangelist. He picks Ananias, an ordinary, everyday, unspecial Christian. And he says, I want you to go and share with this man, Paul. And Ananias becomes one of the unsung unsung heroes of the book of Acts. We don't talk about him much. He only appears in Acts 9 and Acts 22, and he's only involved in Paul's story. But because of his obedience to God, Paul's life will be changed forever, and through Paul, God will change and impact the world. All that we know about this man, Ananias, is he's devoted to Jesus, that actually he's well thought of by outsiders, and that he's got no leadership role in the church. That's all we know. We don't get any more of his biography, that's it. But I love that God doesn't pick someone who has it all together, has all the answers, their theology is amazing, they're courageous and bold, they're this confident leader in the church. He picks someone who's scared. He picks someone who's intimidated by the task. He picks someone who actually doubts God and questions God in sending him. But it's someone who's willing to be obedient to God. It's someone who says, you know what, God, I don't know about this, but I will obey you, I will do what you've called me to do because I know that you are better than me. I back you and your decision. I don't trust myself. In Acts 9 verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. It's all good. Now listen, I think as a pastor, I've got to say that we should obey the Bible and we should obey the spirit when he speaks to us. But I fully get Ananias having questions about the situation, you know. God says, go to the most dangerous person who hates Christians the most because he's waiting for you and he wants to hear a message from you. And actually, he's a brother now. And I can imagine Ananias going, really, God? I'm not sure. Is this something I've eaten? Is this me? Or is this really, really you? You know, this is not like a simple thing. Like, Ananias, it would be great if you went to the preschool and just kind of shared with some kids about Jesus. Or if you went to an old age home. You know, I'm not saying that those are not places we should share the gospel. I'm just saying those places feel safer than going to maybe the most dangerous person for any Christian to speak to. This is like a terrorist, antichrist killer that he's going to stand with and speak to about Jesus. So Ananias asked God again, let me just double check. Is what I think you're saying to me really what you're saying to me? Yes, it is, Ananias. Will you go to Paul on Straight Street? Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias believes God. He obeys God. He does what God calls him to do. He steps out in faith. He takes a risk because he believes in him. And I really want to ask you and maybe challenge you today, is there anything that you feel like the Spirit of God has been putting on your heart which maybe requires a bit of risk and a bit of faith. This is something that you think, oh, this could be God speaking to me, but I'm scared of it. I'm daunted by this. God, I don't know if I'm up to the task. You're doubting God. But actually today, it's like the Spirit would say to you, you need to do this. This is what I'm asking of you. Would you step out in faith and respond to God in that? So Ananias does. 
He goes and he lays hands on Paul. And I love it. He knows that God is wanting to heal Paul, that Paul's eyes are blind. He's believing that the Spirit of God is going to fill and empower Paul. So he lays his hands on him. But more than that, I mean, that's pretty incredible. More than that, Ananias lays hands on this man to show him the love of God. You know, think about this for a second. Paul is blind. Paul can't see Ananias when he walks in. He can't see a smile on his face. He can't see the warmth of his demeanor or presence as he comes in. So as he lays his hands on him, he is showing him the compassion of God by almost extending a hand of fellowship to this man. And you know the first two things he says to him? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Ananias chooses to believe what God says of Saul instead of believing everything else that he's heard about this man before. He chooses to call him Brother Saul. You are in Christ now. Rather than saying enemy Saul, killer Saul, terrorist Saul, man I should be scared of Saul. He says, brother Saul, I'm going to choose to see you through the lenses of faith. I'm going to choose to see you the way God says that he sees you as forgiven, as loved by God, as my brother in the faith, as someone who is a new member of the church. And just think about this for a second. Paul, the first two words he's hearing from a Christian after his encounter with Jesus is words of welcome. It's like Paul could say to him, I actually should be scared of you and worried about you, but I want to welcome you into the family. It's an amazing welcome. It's an amazing acceptance. Harbor City, the church is designed to be a place of grace. It's designed to be a place of forgiveness, a place of acceptance, a place of hope, a place of welcome, and a refuge for those who've repented of their sins that they could be included in no matter what their past look like, no matter what they've done, how bad or how good. This is a place of hope and healing. Acts 9 verse 18 to 20. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. Paul's life has been radically changed by Jesus, fundamentally transformed from the heart outwards. But you know what I love about this passage? Is Ananias' involvement. Imagine Ananias after that moment, you know. He was the one who got to welcome Paul into the family. He got to stretch out his hand and say, Brother Saul, come on in. We want to love you. We want to accept you. I think the thing I love is he could tell his friends, his family, the church, his grandkids forever the story of how he trusted God by faith. He was scared, he was overwhelmed, he was filled with doubt, but actually he did it anyway. And you know what God did? God came through. God did what he said he would do. And Saul became a Christian. I don't know what um, their story would have looked like if him and uh, Paul kept writing each other letters, as Paul traveled around, as Ananias was saying, how are you doing? What can I pray for for you? Where are you at the moment? I don't know if maybe ever he came back to Ananias' home and he spent time with his family and his kids. Maybe like a Christmas time, kind of big turkey meal or whatever it was. Saul was like this welcome guest. They'd kind of like punch each other's shoulders and talk about the time that they met and how scared Ananias was and how scared Paul was and all that was going on. But what I do know is that Ananias' simple act of obedience and trusting God led to the transformation of one man's life. And God was able to use that man to do powerful, powerful things that impacted and changed the world. And I just want to say for us, this series is called Jesus Continued. Jesus is still doing this in Durban today. He's still drawing people whose hearts are hard against him, who hate him, 
are hostile to the church and the message of Jesus. And he's still using people like you and I, ordinary people, like Ananias, to point people to Jesus, that they could come to know him and make him known. Why don't you join me? Will you stand with me this morning?